Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Thank you. Good afternoon and thank you for being here this, uh, today. It is my great pleasure to welcome you to this event in the Chancellor's Colloquium Distinguished Series for 2011-2012. Throughout the year, the Colloquium Series hosts renowned leaders in government, industry, and higher education in a series of talks and public forums to engage the campus community in compelling conversations about how our work at UC Davis has a direct impact on issues of pressing concern for human well-being and environmental health in the 21st century. Our distinguished speakers this year came from many fields, such as um, the humanities, science, and engineering, but they each share one thing in common. They all contribute to a new vision for university-based research and a commitment to transforming that vision into action. I would like now to invite Governor Dukakis and Dean Johnson to join me on stage. Yes. Our format this evening will begin with five to ten minutes of opening remarks by Governor Dukakis and then a short discussion with our Dean of the School of Law, followed by a question and answer period with the audience, moderated by Dean Johnson. Kevin Johnson is Dean, a professor of public interest law and professor of Chicana, Chicano Studies. He previously served as the Associate Dean for Academic Affairs. Like Governor Dukakis, Dean Johnson attended Harvard Law School. He has taught a wide array of classes and in 1993, he was the recipient of the Law School's Distinguished Teaching Award. A regular participant in national and international conferences, Dean Johnson has also held many leadership positions in the Association of American Law Schools and is the recipient of many honors and awards. The minority group section of the Association of American Law Schools honored him with the Clyde Ferguson Award in 2004. In 2006, the Hispanic National Bar Association named him the Law Professor of the Year. He was named the National Association of Chicana and Chicano Studies 2008 Scholar of the Year. In 2003, Dean Johnson was elected to the American Law Institute. We are delighted that he's here at UC Davis as our Dean of the Law School and want to thank him for participating in tonight's colloquium. I'm now honored to introduce our distinguished guest, Governor Michael Dukakis. Governor Dukakis served an unprecedented three terms as governor of Massachusetts and was the 1988 Democratic nominee for president. After leaving office in January 1991, Governor Dukakis and his wife, Kitty, spent time at the University of Hawaii, where he was a visiting professor in the Department of Political Science and the School of Public Health. Since June 1991, the governor has been a distinguished professor of political science at Northeastern University and visiting professor at the School of Public Affairs at UCLA. His research has focused on national health care policy reform and the lessons the national policymakers can learn from state reform efforts. 
He and the late former U.S. Senator Paul Simon are co-authors of How to Get into Politics and Why, which is close to his topic tonight, Public Service, a Great Career. Governor Dukakis was nominated by President Clinton for a five-year term as member of the new Board of Directors of Amtrak in 1998 and served as vice chair of that board. He and Kitty visited campus today and met with many students. Uh, she, Kitty met uh, with psychology students in the psychology department and um, Governor Dukakis at the um, UC Center in Sacramento. And I'm sure the students, and from what I've heard, truly enjoyed the time with both of them. And we want to thank them for spending the time today with our students. So thank you again for being with us today. And I would like now to call on Governor, Governor Dukakis to come forward to the podium or stay there and give his um, opening remarks. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all very much. Thank you. I'm looking for the former First Lady of Massachusetts, which was way up there in the back. So she'll turn around. Kitty Dukakis is right up there. Is that Kitty? Where is she? Where's my wife? Here she is. Anyway, Kitty is, as many of you know, is not only uh, the best-looking Medicare recipient in America, um, but um, spent some time with students today talking about uh, depression, electroconvulsive therapy, which I think it's fair to say saved her life. Uh, she's now organized a national support group of successful ECT patients, has a website, uh, does grand rounds at hospitals all over the country, and I think quite literally has saved the lives of thousands and thousands of people. So, um, and we will be celebrating, if you can believe this, our 49th wedding anniversary in June. Um, And we're still going strong. Um, and the 50th is coming up a little more than a year. And we plan. Where's the chancellor? I think she's out someplace. Um, and our plan for our 50th is to take the entire crew, kids, spouses, and eight grandkids, to Greece for a couple of weeks just to kind of show them where they came from. Now, what am I doing here? Well, for one thing, for the past 17 years, Kitty and I, difficult though it is, have dragged ourselves out of New England in late December. And I have been teaching at the School of Public Affairs at UCLA. It's a difficult burden. Somebody's got to do it. And so, uh, and we've had a wonderful time. I'm embarrassed to say that this is the first time I've been on the Davis campus. But when a fellow Greek calls and says, will you come? Very difficult to turn that down. So it's great to be here with her and with all of you. Um, I do owe you all an apology, you know. I mean, if I had beaten Bush one, you'd have never heard of Bush two, and we wouldn't be in this mess. So, blame me. Um, I just want to spend a few minutes talking, especially at the young people here, talking with the young people, and then we're going to have a little dialogue with Dean Johnson and hopefully with all of you. Um, I've had the rare good fortune to have been actively involved in public service for nearly 40 years, more than that. It all started as an elected town meeting member in the town of Brookline. Most of you don't even know what an elected town meeting member does, unless you're from New England. Um, a very minor local office. 
My parents, I suspect like the parents of many of you here, and certainly the parents of my students at UCLA, were Greek immigrants. My dad came over when he was 15, my mother when she was nine. And they were both really extraordinary people. My dad arrived here, didn't have a nickel in his pocket, couldn't speak English. Had a couple of brothers working in the textile mills up in the Merrimack Valley, Massachusetts. And that young man graduated 12 years later from the Harvard Medical School. First Greek-speaking American-trained doctor in New England. Practiced medicine for 52 years. My mother came here when she was nine, also in that Merrimack Valley shoe and textile area. And uh, thanks to an elementary school principal who became almost a second father to her, she not only finished high school itself, almost unheard of back then, but so far as we can determine, she was the first Greek-American young woman ever to go away to college in the history of the United States. And went to Bates College in Lewiston, Maine, graduated Phi Beta Kappa in 1925, became a school teacher. So um, I was blessed with some pretty extraordinary parents. And uh, it isn't that either one of them was a political activist, but if you're brought up Greek, politics is part of what goes on. In fact, I think I heard a little more about Greek politics than I did about American politics. Um, And my mother's family in particular were passionate Venezuelans, for any of you who are of Greek descent. Um, And I can tell you lots of stories about that, which I won't. But um, in the pre-television days, which is when Kitty and I grew up, the CBS World News Roundup on radio was on every night at 6 o'clock. And I remember those voices of those correspondents crackling in from around the world, particularly during World War II, on radio. And from a very early age, folks, for reasons I'm not sure I can explain, I had what the philosopher Morris Kahn used to call a profound sense of injustice. Because, you see, Kitty and I grew up in an America which was racist, it was anti-Semitic, um, I spent the fall semester of my senior year at Swarthmore in Washington at American University in the Washington semester program. Washington, D.C. in 1954 was as Johannesburg, South Africa, while we were running around the world talking about the free world and how much better we were than the Russians. And I don't know what it was that propelled me to go into public life, but I was in student politics, as many of us are, and from there... It was a short step. As a matter of fact, Joe McCarthy probably had as much to do as anybody with getting me into it because I couldn't stand the guy. And uh, it was my high school basketball coach, a guy named Johnny Grinnell, who was Kitty's homeroom teacher. Of course, she was three years behind me, and I wasn't interested in freshman women at the time. It was Johnny Grinnell, my high school basketball coach, who was the first, first adult who ever said to me, Michael, you should think seriously about running for elective office. And uh, when I was nominated in Atlanta, 1988, John Grinnell was sitting next to my mother in the family box watching me get that nomination. Um, And I've had the rare opportunity, folks, to be deeply deeply and actively involved in the public life of my community and state and country now, ever since, really, I got out of the Army, came back from Korea and started law school. 
And there's nothing like it. And what I want to say, especially to those of you who are young and here, as I said to these wonderful interns and Capitol Fellows that I spent some time with at lunch, is that there's nothing like it. I mean, there is nothing more personally fulfilling and satisfying than being in a position where you can make a difference in the lives of your fellow citizens. Now, it's not just politics that gives you that opportunity, but there's nothing quite like politics to give you that opportunity. And it's the most open political system in the world. You don't need a ticket of admission. You don't even have to kiss anybody's ring. And one of the great things these days about the students that I'm teaching is that a lot of them want to do this. Which, of course, is wonderfully gratifying to somebody like me and inspiring at the same time. Um, I teach 60 undergraduates at UCLA every winter in a course called California Policy Issues. So I've got to stay current with what's going on in this very interesting state. And I teach a graduate course. And uh, I ask them, first class, how many of you are the sons and daughters of, Greek, uh, of immigrants? Two-thirds of the hands went up. And I said, how many of you grandkids of immigrants? The rest of the class went up. And these kids are in that class because they want to be deeply and actively involved in public life. And I think it's terrific. But as I say to them, and as I say every time I speak to young people on college campuses around the country, um, you've got to understand that you're not going to get rich. If you want to make a lot of money, try something else. And as I often say to them, half-kiddingly, have a good but conventional sex life. If you're into the other stuff, good luck to you, but don't go into public life. I mean, you've got to watch that. But um, there's nothing quite like being in a place where you can do the kinds of things that political office, or for that matter, public service working for somebody in political office, permits you to do. There is nothing inherently corrupting about public life. That's nonsense. You set high standards for yourself and the people that work for you when it comes to integrity, and you'll be fine. You'll be fine. And so my mission in life these days is to see if uh, I and others like me cannot encourage lots and lots of young Americans to get actively involved and to have the great satisfaction that I've had of being in a position where one can make a difference. And you really can, you know. Good people working together can make a difference. And we have. Because the America of the 1950s was a much less inspiring and in many ways uh, impressive place than it is today. There's all this nostalgia about back then and you know, the greatest generation and so on and so forth. I mean, I, I make, I, I mean no disrespect to anybody, including Tom Brokaw, but folks, I mean, we had a high school dropout rate when Kitty and I were getting out of Brookline High School in Massachusetts of over 50%. Over half the kids in this country never finished high school back then when the schools were so wonderful and all this kind of stuff. Infant mortality was five times what it is today. Now, we still have a lot of work to do. Why, for example, this country can't seem to make it possible for working people and their families to have decent, affordable health care is beyond me. I don't understand it. And I don't think my party has framed this issue very effectively either. One of the things that you learn, sometimes painfully, 
as I did in 1988, is if you can't communicate what you're talking about, you're going to have a tough time connecting with people. But if you went out and took a poll tomorrow and said to the American people, should working people and their families have decent, affordable health care? And 85 to 90 percent of the uninsured people in this country are working or members of working family folks. They're not loafing. They're not on public assistance. They're working, some of them two or three jobs. If you ask that question to the American people, what do you think the numbers would look like? Over 90 percent say yes. Yet here we are talking about Obamacare and Romney care and all of this kind of nonsense. When every other advanced industrialized nation in the world seems to be able to do this at half the cost that we are spending on a very administratively complex red tape ridden system that's driving us all crazy, including our docs and everybody else who are trying to cope with this thing. So there's a lot to do out there, needless to say. I think our defense budget is far more excessive than it ought to be. This is a Cold War budget and the Cold War is over. Now, we face a threat. I mean, terrorism is a serious threat, but F-35s and ABMs and all this hardware aren't going to deal with that, are they? I don't think so. I mean, the way you fight terrorism is by getting inside these organizations with very tough, skilled police work and breaking them up. But, I mean, even the Cato Institute thinks we can cut $100 billion out of the defense budget tomorrow without affecting... National Security one iota, and I agree with them. 437 American bases. I'm sorry, 837 American bases all over the world. 11 carrier groups. I mean, what is all of this? Now we're sending Marines to Australia. Have you noticed? Great for the Marines. You ever been to Australia? It's a great place, great-looking women. They love Yanks. I mean, you know, wonderful duty, but 2,500 Marines. I mean, what's the point of all of this? The paranoia about China, I don't get it. I don't get it. I mean, everything we buy, we buy from China. Everything we borrow, we borrow from China. They didn't invade Iraq, we did. So um, we've got a lot of work to do. But I have a lot of faith in this country. And I have particularly a lot of faith in our young people. And uh, I hope with your help and the help of great universities like this one and others, we can inspire these kids to really get deeply involved in the politics and public service with the communities and state and country. Because we need them. It's great life. And uh, I think we have the possibilities now of building a great future for ourselves and, frankly, for the world. And I hope we can do that. Anyway, I'm going to stop at this point, go back and sit down, answer a few questions, I guess, from Dean Johnson, and then we're going to invite you all to be a part of this. Thank you. Thank you, Governor Dukakis, and thank you all for being here. Uh, I wanted to ask just a few questions before we open it up to the audience, and, and I can't resist asking this one, uh, Governor Dukakis. What were the, the high points and the low points from the 1988 presidential campaign? The high point was getting nominated in Atlanta, and the low point was getting beat. <laughs> as simple as that. Winning is always a lot more fun than losing. I've had both experiences. What would you change if you had to change anything in the campaign? During the campaign? Well, I made a lot of mistakes in the campaign. Of course, everybody makes mistakes. I think the biggest mistake I made, frankly, and it was my decision nobody else has given, was to... Uh, 
decide early on that I would not respond to the Bush attack campaign. And I'm afraid the lesson of that campaign is not that if your opponent gets down in the gutter, you've got to get down in the gutter. But you've got to be ready for an attack campaign. You've got to have a carefully thought out strategy for dealing with it. Preferably one that turns the attack campaign into a character issue on the guy that's doing it. And I had, uh, you know, I'm a positive guy by nature. I'd uh, run a very positive primary campaign successfully. And uh, I just didn't do what you have to do. And again, it doesn't mean you've got to stoop to the other guy's level, but you've got to be ready for this and you've got to have an approach to it. I think I said to the Capitol Fellows that when Bill Clinton ran in 1992, he was subject to every bit as tough an attack campaign. Why didn't we have that perception? Well, because he created a unit in his campaign of about 10 people, some of whom had worked for me in 88, and they actually called themselves the Defense Department. And all they did all the time was to deal with attacks from the Bush camp. And they did a pretty effective job. But now we're in another recession. Maybe it was a better time for a Democrat to be running and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, but I think that was by far the biggest mistake I made. And, uh, and it was nobody's fault but my own. I mean, I made that decision and you got to live by it. Can you give us a, a few of your thoughts about the current Republican presidential candidates? I guess I've got to do that, right? You don't have to do that if you don't Look, want. Look, it's a, it's a strange race, it seems to me. Um, and I think I'm being objective when I say this. Um, for reasons I'm not sure I understand, the base of the Republican Party seems to have moved to the right dramatically. Um, all during my political career, folks, I worked with some wonderful Republicans. In fact, I was a big fan of Mitt Romney's father. In fact, I courted that beautiful woman in a little yellow Rambler convertible. Anybody old enough to remember the Rambler, Rambler here? Because George Romney was the only guy in Detroit at the time making a small fuel-efficient car. He was a fine governor of Michigan, fine secretary of housing and urban development. Uh, Republicans that I work with in the Massachusetts legislature, excellent people. People of integrity, people of strongly committed to civil rights, civil liberties. Uh, we work together on all kinds of things. Um, that's not the Republican Party, Kevin, I'm looking at these days. For reasons I'm not sure I understand. Um, and we're having a, a rather interesting race in which I guess the question is, uh, who's the real conservative? Whatever that means. Um, now, where I come from, being conservative, among other things, means being fiscally responsible. Again, I think I'm stating an objective truth when I say that the George W. Bush administration was the most fiscally irresponsible administration in the history of this country. And if you're the son of Greek immigrants, folks, you don't spend money foolishly. How many times did I hear that? You know, save it. Uh, be, be frugal. Um... Kitty says I'm the cheapest guy in America. I think that's a little extreme, but um, I'm, I'm, I'm thrifty. You know, my, our kids threatened to do a Costco intervention on me a couple of years ago, so you got some sense of where I buy my groceries. Um, and I don't see that in this crew either. I mean, they talk a lot about how they spending and cutting taxes, but, um, you know, they want to keep the troops in 
Iraq. They want to keep them in Afghanistan. Some of them want to bomb Iran. I mean, I mean, apart from what you think of all of this, how are they going to pay for it? I mean, it's a question we've got to ask ourselves. Now, what about the guy from Massachusetts? Although he's no longer from Massachusetts, he's from New Hampshire. But he was originally from Michigan. And almost took up residence in Utah. And is building a fancy, fancy house in La Jolla, La Jolla California. Um, can I be frank? He's smart, he's slick, and he's a fraud. Simple as that. Biggest political disappointment I've ever witnessed. A guy who, when he ran against Kennedy for the Senate, seemed to be a chip off the old block. Um, has turned out, obviously, to be anything but that. A lousy governor. I mean, this guy's running on the economy, Kevin. And we were fourth from the bottom in job creation under Romney. And when he left office, the state's infrastructure was a wreck. Just a disaster. So... Um, while I think he's going to win the nomination eventually, at which point, of course, he will turn around and try to turn himself into a moderate Republican again. Um, I think he'd be a disaster in the White House. No, I've tried to be as subtle as I possibly could. Could you please but, tell us what you really think? Yeah. <laughs> but then what can you say for these other folks? I mean, his principal rival at this moment is a guy that lost his Senate seat by 18 percentage points in Pennsylvania. And then there's a badly flawed former speaker there, and then there's Ron Paul, who I must say, at least when it comes to the foreign policy side of things, while I don't agree with, with his approach to it, I mean, at least is asking for us to carefully scrutinize what it is that we are spending and how interventionist we're going to be um, and there are still some people around, including a guy like, named McCain, who I guess wasn't listening to Bob Gates when he said, remember, just before he left the Secretary of Defense position, any future Secretary of Defense who advises a president to get involved in another land war in the Middle East said Gates ought to have his head examined. And yet we've got people over there, Cain, Graham, all these guys, talking about another intervention. So... Um, so it's a strange race, but I don't think the president can take it lightly. Um, as long as the economy, while I think it's improving gradually, is uh, still not where it ought to be, any incumbent is going to be in trouble. And in the meantime, my party's got to pay attention to the Congress. Because uh, there's no sense in electing Obama and then re-electing this crew that took over the House of Representatives. So the Democrats better get serious about winning some of these congressional seats, and that includes Democrats in California who have an opportunity to do that. You mentioned in your remarks the importance of health care reform. Well, what do you think of the health care reform passed by Congress and signed by the president? It's okay. It's not my preference. Um, I signed a universal health care bill in Massachusetts in 1988 which was a carbon copy of the Hawaiian plan, which is a carbon copy of Richard Nixon's health plan. And the pity is, Kevin, that we didn't pass the Nixon plan back in 1971. In fact, if Ted Kennedy were alive today and were here, he'd tell you that the worst political mistake he made was in not joining Nixon right away in the early 70s. 
in getting that bill through. Now, what was the Nixon plan? The Nixon plan basically said all employers and employees in the United States are going to have to contribute to health care at the workplace for themselves and their families. And if people are temporarily unemployed, we'll expand Medicaid to cover that. That was the Nixon plan. Kennedy, at the time, wanted what today we'd call universal Medicare. Didn't want the insurance companies involved. And there's a lot to be said for that plan as well, in my judgment. But in any event, uh, what I signed was a state version of the Nixon plan, which has been in effect since 1975, very successfully in the state of Hawaii. Now, what about this? Well, it's okay. 99.5% of the people in Massachusetts now have comprehensive health care under a plan which is virtually identical, even though Romney seems to want to deny this, to the bill that we signed when he was governor. Though in typical Romney fashion, at the 11th hour, he ran away from that one, too. Um, and given the Massachusetts experience, Kevin, uh, I think the chances are that this will go a long way toward covering virtually all Americans, with the exception of undocumented aliens. And because the bill doubles the amount of federal assistance to community health centers, most of those undocumented aliens, I would think, will be cared for in what are very good community health centers, which, by the way, have substantial Republican support. Uh, Orrin Hatch, for example, is a big fan of community health centers. Now, the missing piece here is cost control. Because, as I said earlier, we are spending literally double per capita what the other advanced industrialized nations in the world spend on health care, and they cover everybody with rather good health care. Um, how is that possible? Well, they have systems which are quite simple. You don't have 72 different products and 85 different options. Healthcare is healthcare. Health insurance is health insurance. And whether it's a so-called multi-payer system or a single-payer system, the administrative overhead is much, much lower. I mean, people differ these days on how much of the premium dollar actually goes for administrative overhead in the United States, but it's somewhere in the 25 to 30 percent range. Any of you know what the comparable figure is for Medicare? What percentage of total spending on Medicare goes for administrative overhead? Two and a half, three. Why? Because the government's more efficient than the private sector? Well, it is in this sense that it's a single system, right? All of us on Medicare get the same thing. There's no medical underwriting. They don't try to investigate us to see whether or not we're sick or had been sick or might be sick. You don't have 72 products. There's one defined package. And we all get it. And it's quite good. Um, that's what happens in these other countries. And uh, there isn't a great deal in the new bill that deals with that. There is, however, one particular part of the bill that nobody's talked about, which seeks to empower state insurance commissioners to use their authority to get control of increases in health insurance premiums. And Massachusetts right now is deeply engaged in that effort. It's the governor's top priority. It's the legislature's top priority. And my hope and expectation is, is that once again we'll come up with a model of cost control which gets health costs under control and at the same time maintains the high quality of the health care that we get in our state. If we can do that, Kevin, I think once again we may be able to show the way for the rest of the country. But the 
the bill itself has passed, and I can understand why, only deals with that in a kind of pilot project way. There's no comprehensive health care cost control system that's part of the bill. And it may well be that having state insurance commissioners take responsibility for that is probably the best way to do it. Okay, now we have time for some questions from the audience. And I think there are microphones out there to ask questions. asking questions. Okay. Uh, thank you for talking to us, Governor. Uh, it looks like the Supreme Court is going to be uh, looking at affirmative action. In your opening comments, you talked a little about racism in this society. Uh, can you talk about your experience in uh, perhaps moving affirmative action forward or just some general comments on that issue? I'm, first, let me say I'm very concerned about this court, or at least five members of it. We've got a decision on gun control, which I thought was off the wall. Uh, Citizens United has to be one of the four or five worst decisions in the history of the Supreme Court of the United States, in my judgment. Uh, I've read the Constitution at least a thousand times. Kevin, you've probably read it 5,000 times. I'm still trying to find the place in the Constitution that says that money is speech. Where is it? And these guys call themselves strict constructionists. Find it for me. We can't reasonably regulate campaign contributions and campaign spending. We've been doing it for over a century. All of a sudden we're told, well, sorry, that's a free speech right. And by the way, corporate money also is covered by the First Amendment. You know, John McCain in his better days, when told that, said, well, if money is speech, then 99% of us are disenfranchised. I agree with him. Now, what about affirmative action? Well, um, I was elected with a very strong commitment to start making my state government look more like the rest of the world, because it didn't. And I think we were quite successful at doing so, and encouraging people of color to come into public service, young people of color to think seriously about public service as a career, and train themselves to do that. Um, I thought the Michigan decision made a lot of sense. And for the life of me, I can't understand why this court wants to reconsider it. But you've got to understand, elections matter, folks. You elect the President of the United States, the President of the United States has the right to appoint members of the Supreme Court. And don't let anybody tell you that the Supreme Court doesn't make public policy. It does. It does. And this one is making it almost every day. But I think it would be a tragedy if diversity was, in effect, excluded as uh, at least one factor in admissions to universities. Uh, if, you could, if you can put the ball in the hoop, that counts, right? If your parent was an alumnus, that counts, right? If you know somebody in the admissions office, you call them, right? I mean, nobody's going to tell me that there aren't other factors that go into uh, college and university admissions. And I think it is important that our kids be on campuses with racial and ethnic diversity. Look, when I first ran for the legislature, it was inconceivable that a Greek-American could be elected governor of Massachusetts. It's not that people didn't like us. I mean, there aren't enough of us to threaten anybody. 
but it was just not in the cards in terms of the ethnic politics of my state. 20 years later, there was a Greek in the governor's office. That was me. There was a Greek in the United States Senate. That was Paul Sargas. There was a Greek in Congress, a guy named Nick Mavrulis. All of us sons of immigrants. Now, I'm proud of that. I think it's a good thing. And I think college campuses ought to reflect the ethnic and racial diversity of uh, this country. And so I don't know why the court would be messing around with the Michigan case, but apparently they're prepared to do so, and I fear the worst, frankly. Question from over here. Governor, thank you for joining us today. Uh, my name is Jeremy Ogle. I'm a senior here at UC Davis. And I just wanted to ask you a question about something that you said during your opening remarks. Um, you said that public, uh, working in public life is not inherently corrupting. Right. And I'm wondering if you could pr provide some examples of uh, people in public life, politicians, elected officials, who exemplify um, that lack of corruption. The vast majority of people that I work with in public life in politics reflect that. Um, most of them could have made three times what they were making in public life in the private sector um, with a lot less, a much less complicated life in many ways. And I'm talking about people who are conservatives as well as liberals, Republicans as well as Democrats who run for office or serve in a point of office or serve in the career service because they care deeply about their world, their community, and uh, want to do something to make it better. Um, now, we do have these days laws that try to set some standards, and one of the things that we have to do if you get into public management or public leadership is to make sure that uh, public servants have uh, regular ongoing integrity, in-service integrity training, that uh, they have an opportunity to get advisory opinions before they do something that they think may cross the ethical line. Um, but um, very few of the people that I work with in public life uh, played fast and loose with ethical standards. Now, unfortunately, you read about the ones that do. And uh, I've often said to my friends in the press corps, you know, if they reported uh, baseball the way re they report uh, the conduct of public officials, uh, Anytime the Red Sox won, it would be on page 37, and if they lost, it would be on page 1. That's not the way they report it, fortunately, uh, for those of us uh, died in the world Red Sox fans. But um, believe me, uh, most of the people I worked with, certainly the people that worked for me, um, set high standards of integrity for themselves and, and for the people that work with them and, and met those standards. And what I'm particularly concerned about and I don't want those of you who are young and have aspirations for public office, whether elective or otherwise, to think that somehow there's something inherent about the thing that, uh, that inherently is corrupting. I mean, it's just not true. And uh, just it's a very simple rule, as I tell my students, accept nothing of value from anybody. That's all, you know. And you'll be fine. You'll be fine. Another question. Governor, thanks for coming here. I want to tell you that I did vote for you in 1988. Thank you. Thank <laughs> uh, you. But I'm not sure who your vice presidential candidate was. That Geraldine Ferraro, or am I mistaken? There? Lloyd Benson. Oh, Lloyd. A Benson. wonderful oh, guy. Right. right. Oh, yes. That's when he told Quayle, "You're no John Kennedy." Right. John Kennedy was a friend of mine. So yes. Oh, that was marvelous. You know, John. But Kennedy. now, since that time, 
there's something that is really exasperating that has occurred as the polarization between left and right occurs there's this really awful what I'll call anti-government ideology and that is infecting just about every decision for example Romney care in Massachusetts produced what uh, are, and all of you produced something like 95 percent covered 99 okay. and a half percent. Okay, and in Texas, Rick Perry produced se only 75% covered or less, and yet <laughs> it was a mark of a badge of honor for Rick Perry not to have such an obtrusive government program, and Romney cares to keep uh, backing away. Romney has to keep backing away from his participation in that. I don't understand that except that the anti-government ideology accounts for that. Similarly, the bailout of the auto industries, I'll just give these two examples, the healthcare and then the auto industry, bailout of General Motors. And this, President Obama was excoriated for doing that, and then all of a sudden it became a great success. And yet, Romney, who's from Michigan, because of the anti-government ideology of his base, has to somehow maintain that that was not a good thing. It would have been better if they had gone into a managed bankruptcy, even though there was no credit available right. to keep them from disintegrating. So I don't understand this anti-government ideology, except that I remember one anecdote of Ronald Reagan, which was, well, I'm going to ask you about the anti-government ideology, but it started, I believe, with Ronald Reagan, which said the most the most frightening thing you could hear is someone saying, I'm from the government and I'm here to help you. He actually made that a cornerstone of his you philosophy. You say that often, yeah. So well, let me say this. How, Look, how did this happen, this anti-government ideology? From it's Reagan been there from the beginning of the republic. Um, and more recently, we've had, um, I remember the billboards get the U.S. out of the U.N. and the U.N. out of the U.S. Any of you old enough remember those? Remember the impeach Earl Warren billboards? All over the Midwest when I was hitchhiking all over the country in the 50s. Um, John Birch Society, Moral Majority. I mean, it's been there. What's concerning, as I tried to point out earlier, is that the base of the Republican Party seems to have moved there. And this is the first time I can remember even Reagan raised taxes ten times, you know, after the initial tax cut. Raised the gasoline tax, raised a lot of things. Um, he would say himself that he was never somebody who thought you made sense to go, go over the cliff when it came to this kind of stuff. Um, George Bush is responsible for the most intrusive National education bill in history. I'm not a big fan of No Child Left Behind, but the fact of the matter is it was a product of a Republican administration. And by the way, with a lot of opposition within the Republican Party. And of course, his principal collaborator on the bill was Edward M. Kennedy. Um, so that's, it's while it's been a constant in American political life, I think the thing that is so troubling is that it now seems to be at the base of whoever it is who runs the Republican Party. And so a guy like Romney, who ought to know better and does know better, I think, I'm not sure, 
Maybe he's suffering from some grand delusion. Is up there saying, uh, you know, I was a severe conservative in Massachusetts. As Paul Krugman said in the New York Times, you know, when you talk about something that's severe, it's an illness. <laughs> um, and I don't see my party moving dramatically to the left. In fact, we seem to be getting more moderate as time goes on. So um, I think that's just a fact of life. Now, the best way to end this is to beat the daylights out of them in November. And, and, and I, you know, so that whoever it is who's currently, who currently makes up the Republican Party in this, this country begin to have second thoughts about whether or not that's the right place to be. But look, you folks are Californians. What's happened to the Republican Party in California? I mean, I remember the Tom Keekleys. I remember uh, the Earl Warrens and others. In fact, Warren was nominated by both parties, wasn't he, Kevin? Mm -hmm. Yep. For the governorship. And uh, his two big priorities as governor were highways, transportation, and universal health care for the people of California. And he came very close to getting it. This was in 1947. So um, clearly something is happening in that party. And all of the moderate Republicans that I used to work with in Massachusetts have either left the Republican Party or joined the Democratic Party because of this anti-government bias that seems to be infecting that party. But, you know, that's what politics is all about. You've got to make your case. You've got to frame these issues in ways that connect with people. That's why I'm so concerned about the health care thing, why the Democratic Party has failed to make this a question of health, decent, affordable health care for working people and their families, which is what it is, I think is a serious mistake on our part. And it's one of the reasons why an issue that should be winning for us isn't. But um, we've had this threat in American politics for a long, long time. And uh, you saw it during the New Deal. You saw it when Truman was president, Kennedy was president, and so forth, and we've got it now, although I think it's really perhaps more acute on the Republican side than it's been in a long time. Severe. 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 <laughs> Question from over here. Governor, in California, fewer than one in four elected officials at all levels statewide is a woman. Can you talk about what you see as the disadvantages of that and how we might engage more women to take the chance to run for office? The answer is very simple. Women, simple. women have to run for office. Run hard, run effectively, organize well, take precinct-based organizations seriously, which not, neither men nor women seem to me to be doing anywhere near as intensively as they ought to be when it comes to running for political office. The... Um, California State Senate that I spent a few brief minutes with today looked very different from the California State Senate that I first walked into many years ago. Awful lot of women there. Probably could use more. But there's only one way you can get elected to political office, and that is to run and win. And um, we've got a terrific woman running for the United States Senate in the state of Massachusetts. Today, she can beat Brown, but she's going to have to work, and we're going to have to work as hard as we possibly can to get Elizabeth Warren elected. She's a great candidate. She's a terrific person. 
but she's not going to win it on television, in my judgment. We've got 2,157 precincts. Every one of them has to have a precinct captain and six block captains making personal contact on an ongoing basis with every single voting household in that state. If we do that, she's going to be elected and a great addition to the United States Senate. But it's not going to happen automatically. It takes that kind of work and that kind of effort by all of us. One last question. Governor Dukakis, my name is Sam Hood. I'm a senior here at UC Davis. I want to thank you for coming out to our campus. What are you today. majoring in? Political science and communication. Terrific. And uh, you touched on this briefly uh, in some of your talks today. What I see as the two greatest moral failings of this, the wealthiest nation in the world, is that we can't provide affordable um, access to both health care and education to our citizenry. But what concerns me even further is what I see as a culture that no longer values education the way it should be. And this is manifested recently in Rick Santorum saying President Obama is a snob for wanting everyone to get a college education. But also here in California where I see education is one of the first things to be cut and rising tuition placed on students like it's nothing. How do we as a nation address a culture that doesn't seem to value education the way it ought to be and the way it once was? Both good questions. I've already talked about health care. We're spending more than enough money right now in health care in the United States to ensure every man, woman, and child in the country. Without a doubt. Billions going for administrative red tape and Mickey Mouse and complexity that's not adding a single thing. Kitty did grand rounds not too long ago at the Tufts New England Medical Center in Boston, which is one of our great teaching hospitals. About 400, 450 beds, Kevin. How many people do you think are on staff at Tufts, New England, doing nothing but collecting? Contributing nothing to health care. Just collecting. Take a guess. Anybody? 500 people in that 400-bed hospital doing nothing but collecting. Katie and I, several years ago, visited Lionsgate Hospital in Vancouver, British Columbia. 400 beds. How many people do you think they have on their entire accounting staff, including payroll? 25. No wonder Canadian health care is 60%. And by the way, it's damn good health care. And everybody gets it. So on the health care front, the money's there. Now, do we have the will? Do we have the commitment? Does, can my party frame this issue in ways that resonate with the American people? I hope so. Now, what about education? Well, again, sorry, you know, in two years I'm going to be 80. I feel 30, but I'm going to be 80. Anyway, um, I, I talked about the state of education back when Kitty and I were in high school, going to college. Um, we've come miles, folks. We've come miles. I mean, the college-going percentage, the kids coming out of high school, uh, the high school completion rate, doesn't mean we don't have a problem. We do. Got to keep working at it. But I think, I mean, you take polls these days, Americans value education without question. The obvious challenge is how do we provide it to more and more young people who want to go to college? Had it been told, you've got to go to college, you've got to go to college. You're going to succeed, you've got to have a college degree, you've got to go on. And how do we make it possible for those folks to do that? Now, 
you know, your state faces a big challenge because on the one hand, you've got the best public higher education system in the world, bar none. And it's, in the, it's at the heart of your economic future. Is there any question about that? No question about it. Uh, especially the UC system and this incredible network of great research universities. Why is my state got a 6.5% unemployment rate and it's dropping? Because we've got 120 colleges and universities, including Harvard and MIT and UMass and so on. I mean, it's at the heart of our success in an economic sense. But you have this confounded two-thirds requirement when it comes to raising the money necessary to support that system. I don't know how you function that way. Honest to Pete, I mean, I found it tough enough to provide the resources I thought my state needed with a majority vote to raise taxes and a two-thirds vote in the legislature for a bond issue. But even so, I mean, the people of Los Angeles County, in the middle of a recession, voted to raise their sales tax earmarked for public transportation. What do you think of that? In the car capital of America. Well, I'm an old public transportation guy, as you know. I'm a big fan of the high-speed rail system. Bring me back and we'll have a full session about why you desperately need a first-class high-speed rail system. But um, I think if, if you can make the case effectively, even with this two-thirds requirement, people will be supportive of it, and you're going to have an opportunity to see that, Kevin, in November, right? Yes. Since I think the governor is asking for at least an extension of existing taxes. Um, but as I said to the state senate, and I will close with this, and by the way, you're not alone. Every state does this. As the economy comes back and revenues increase and you begin to develop a surplus, don't blow it. Put it in a rainy day fund. Pay down your debt. Fund your pension system. And then if you have any money left over, put it into one-time infrastructure expenditures. But don't go down this road again. The Chancellor will, will tell you, we Greeks have an old expression. Pathima, mathima. Things happen, and you're supposed to learn from them, right? It even rhymes. And yet we do the same thing over and over and over again. And then, of course, when the states are broke, they go to Washington with a tin cup and say, help us, we're broke. Don't do that. Make sure that the economy is coming back, but make sure when it happens that you're back in surplus land that we learn from this experience, all of us. And you husband those resources, you invest them in things like public education and better writing. I love my students at UCLA, but they can't write worth a damn. And I'm a stickler for good writing. That's what happens when you're the son of an English teacher. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm optimistic about this country. Uh, I think we've got a great future ahead of us, but we cannot keep making the same dumb mistakes over and over again. But look, most Americans these days, most Californians these days, do value education. They do, a lot. And a lot of them, parents are sacrificing so their kids can get a first-class education. But uh, for that young person who asked the question and other young folks here, the best way to do it is to get deeply and actively involved in politics. Be leaders. Make the case. And people will respond. I have no doubt about it. Anyway, thanks for having me. It's been great. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you.
Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.